Well, good morning again, everybody. It is good to be back with you to share this time of worship. It's sometimes hard to transition from beach mode to preaching mode, but we'll give it a shot today. I do um, definitely appreciate those prayers for those in Ames. Um, good friends with the pastor there at Cornerstone, who's in the middle of all of this stuff. He's part of the coaching cluster, and he was here for Elaine's funeral and, and stuff like that too, so keep Pastor King Smith in your prayers for that as well. Um, but you know, today we're going to be kind of pushing through on our spiritual gifts as we come to this next gift which is distinguishing between the spirits. It is a gift commonly known as the gift of discernment. Uh, and today we will be putting it into practice a little bit. You know, um, it is an odd gift, uh, one that I've been blessed with and very thankful for at many times in my life. Uh, I've heard it described as having a sort of spidey sense where you can just feel in your gut that something's not right. You know, it is the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. And sometimes the obvious things, it's pretty easy to do. But it's when it's pretty close to the truth that it becomes a little bit more difficult. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is known on, about his quote on discernment. As he says, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right almost telling you with that quote that right and wrong shouldn't even be a question in your heart and mind as a believer. You should know right from wrong. It's those almost rights where it gets a little bit difficult, when it's hard to understand what the truth is. So we're going to be diving into this topic a little bit more today. Let's first open up with prayer. Father, as we continue to look at this... Um, at this series, with the gifts of the Spirit, as we are winding them down, I just pray that you would continue to open up our hearts and minds to your truths, that you would give us understanding, especially when it comes to this gift. Lord, it is so important for today. In your name we pray these things. Amen. All right, so with this gift, again, I think that we, we understand it pretty well, but I want to continue to define terms as we have been doing so we can be on the same page and look through biblical examples to give us good understanding of how this plays out in the Bible and how we can apply that to our lives. So as we look at distinguishing between the spirits, it gives us a sense of judging where we're making decisions between things. Here in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 12, it is talking about distinguishing between the spirits. Other places of the Bible, Hebrews 5, for instance, it's talking about good and evil. In Hebrews 5, getting some more of that context, beginning in verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Food is for, for sorry, for those who live on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by pr constant practice to distinguish good 
from evil. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew terms, um, a lot of times it would give you this under, it would give about the, the sense of understanding, perceiving, to where you were perceiving the truth about wisdom, about people, about situations, about what was going on. We covered other verses a couple weeks ago in 1 John 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 that talked about testing the spirits. Um, and, and then in other places in the New Testament, when the root of this term is used, it gives off this sense of evaluation. So when we look at this, in, in many ways, the ability to distinguish involves judging, testing, and evaluating in order to decide and determine truth. And in many ways, the ability to distinguish spirits involves evaluating the other gifts to determine where they're coming from. Now think about that statement for a minute. These are spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit. They're from God. So there shouldn't be any debate. But we do have an enemy that loves to mimic God in order to bring confusion. So there is a danger in what seems to be the gifts of the Spirit actually being from the enemy to confuse us. To where we need to be able to distinguish between what is solid gold or merely gold-plated. Different way to say what Spurgeon said. Now this danger is not an excuse or a reason to say that the gifts have ceased or that everything around us is ungodly. That's not using the gift of discernment. That's just relegating everything you see as coming from the enemy. And I think that the, that type of attitude distracts from this gift. Because this gift is so needed in our world today. In our world that assaults truth, blurs truth, confuses truth. We have to understand that the enemy is very active it's essential to be able to tell the difference between what's actually from the Spirit and what's from the enemy. Today I want to look at some Bible passages that will help us to understand this. Turn over to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verses 9 through 12. says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Wonderful Psalm of David. But does this reference ring any bells? Do you get a sense of where I'm going with this. See, this passage is familiar, but you know it from a different reference. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, of course, we have the temptation of Jesus. And also in Luke 4, same verses, 9 through 12. It says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. 
For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Does it concern you that Satan quotes Scripture? It should. It should add to the validity of Scripture, the authority that Scripture has. I mean, Satan says, it is written. No matter how many times you read the Bible, no matter how many degrees you have, you have to understand that Satan and his demons are Bible experts. They understand the Bible a lot better than you ever think you will. There's a spiritual battle going on. As Ephesians 6 tells us, we need to put on the whole armor of God, that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need to be able to distinguish and acknowledge who and what is the actual enemy. Oftentimes, we're left fighting with ourselves, fighting within denominations, fighting with other churches, fighting with other believers. They're the enemies. Do you ever think that's what the true enemy wants? Again, not seeking unity for unity's sake, but discerning truth with what's going on around us. Because slightly twisting scripture, confusing us, has been the mode of attack from Satan from day one. Satan uses the word of a God against us. He challenges us with it. Did God really say? Would we know what God really said? Let's look at a few more examples of other gifts being mimicked. Throughout the entire Bible, you can find oracles, mediums, seers, diviners, all using the gift of prophecy, all using this prophetic thing, but coming from the enemy, not from God. You have the demon-possessed girl in Acts 16 that follows Paul around. Paul puts up with it for a little while, but then he casts the demon out. In this culture, if you were Jewish, you would go to the rabbi for healing. If you were Greek, you would go to a certain Greek temple and you would pay a certain amount to receive healing. You wouldn't go to doctors. What we want to get across and understand is that there's a strong battle going on to deceive us. We need this gift. As Paul enters into the city of Athens in Acts 17, in verse 6, it says this, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Do we understand the battle that is around us? Do we understand the culture and the society that we live in? Are our spirits provoked? Turn over to Second Thessalonians. We're going to read a couple larger passages. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, 
not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes the seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now. Excuse me. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, of course, this is talking more about the Antichrist and the lawless one and the times to come. But we see the deception behind Satan, the things that he does in order to steer people away from Christ. It's something that Paul dealt with a lot in his ministry. He would give the gospel and then people would come in behind him trying to distort the gospel that they believed in. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just a few pages back. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me a little in, fo- in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one who, the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super-apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, and I am not so in knowledge, indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So, who is our enemy? You know, as Paul deals with these super apostles that are going around and and preaching something other than Christ, as he goes around and he talks about these false people, minions of Satan, who is our enemy? How do we answer that question? For a moment, humor me, I'm going to paint with a broad brush. Because I hear this a lot within the American mindset. To the American church, if someone is proclaiming something other than what I already believe, they are an enemy. They are a deceiver. They are a false teacher. Truth within the denominationalism in America becomes subjective. Because this is my truth. And if I disagree, I'm going to go across the street to a different church. You look at church growth today. It's not real church growth. It's just people hopping churches. People already claiming to be believers. Now, I don't want to say that we're believing false things here. Instead, I want to introduce into your mind a mode of humility into your faith. Because many times it's always those other people. We believe the right thing. It's a mentality that is destructive to the church. You know, when we hear things, when we see things and our faith is challenged, we shouldn't just dismiss things right away. We shouldn't come up with platitudes. We shouldn't build up our walls. We shouldn't let others discern for us. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, Jewish people who once they hear the word, the gospel message, take it to Scripture, the Old Testament that they had to verify it. This is what it says about them in verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. See, we need to study the whole counsel of God. Paul tells Timothy to rightly handle the word of God because that is the right method to test, to weigh, to judge what's being said. Verifying what you're getting is from the Holy Spirit. You know, when we have that tinge that goes off and we feel that discomfort in our spirit, is it biblical or is it not biblical? Is it our traditions? Is it our interpretations that are guiding the beliefs that I have? It's something that's difficult to realize. And that's why it's a gift of the Spirit. Because if it's based on my own logic, my own intellect, my own reasoning and understanding, how many degrees I have, what church I belong to, it's not going to measure up. It is the Spirit of God who teaches us all truth. Period. Exclamation point. I would love to claim that, but I'm not the Spirit. I'm just a man, I'm fallible, fallible. I'm going to make mistakes. Each week I try to come up as humbly as I can to present to you the word of God in love and in truth. But it's difficult. 
me give you an example of this struggle. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I read it many times in my life. I memorized it. That memorization was my first sermon that I've ever preached on a Sunday. I titled it, The Greatest Sermon Ever. I was a young 20-something kid that didn't have facial hair, so people didn't respect me. Um, But you know, I came out and I played off, this was the greatest sermon ever. And then I said Jesus' words back to them. But you know, as I read the Sermon on the Mount, I understand that the people weren't always following the ways of God. I get that. People today aren't always following the words of God. I get that. But there's difficulties within that sermon. You know, when Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, what do you think the people would think about as they heard that? What if somebody in the pulpit came up here today and said, you have heard that it was said Jesus is the only way to heaven, but I say to you, how do we treat that? I mean, this isn't like it's right before the crucifixion. This is chapter 5 of Matthew. He just selected his disciples. He just got tempted by the devil. This is his first sermon. And he's making a splash. But you know, in my heart, in my mind, as I read that, as I listen to what those words say, with my logic, it immediately goes to, look, I didn't hear this. I read this. It's written, Jesus, in three places in the Old Testament. In Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19-21. It is written, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. So how do you reconcile that? How do you, how do you understand that the word of God is not contradictory, it is not false, in understanding what Jesus says? You know, so many times we get hung up on certain verses or phrases and we're not taking in the whole counsel of God. But as you pray, as you discern, as you lean into the Father, you can see what Jesus is saying. You realize that these verses are in the law and it is said to be a deterrent from breaking the law. Similar to different statements on divorce where Jesus says, look, this stuff was added in because of your hard hearts. These things are added in because of their evil. It's not the way it originally was meant to be. But when you look at those verses, you realize they're put in as a deterrent from breaking the law. It's a good reminder that if you break the law, you die. If you sin against God, death is the consequence. There's grave consequences for your actions. God requires his law to be done perfectly. That is why we need Jesus. That is what Jesus came to do in terms of bringing life into those messy situations through the sacrifice on the cross. Understanding the whole counsel of God. We need to understand that because there's gonna be those of us, those among us, who are false. And when you think of false prophets, just like breaking the law, they will lead to death and destruction. So we need life, we need truth. 
We need the Spirit. But that's harder than it seems. Now, you have your obvious false prophets that are out there. You have your other religions that are out there. You have your Jim Joneses, the David Koresh's, the Joseph Smiths of the world, where we can see that it's obvious. But they've still had a following, still have a following today, where it's not as clear for those people. Now, I've mentioned this before in the past. I still don't have the guts to do it. And as I've prayed for wisdom, especially in this message, um, you know, I've often wanted to come up here and give heretical things just to see if people would denounce me. But as I continue to pray about that, doing that without warning, I think would be too big of a cause for people to stumble. But I think that we need to test what we hear often, where we're openly practicing discernment and say why things are false, not just claiming things are false, but knowing why they are. Because we're influenced by the world and the internet more than we care to admit. Uh, In another position, I was leading a Sunday school class, and it was a book study. And there was a discussion among the elders about whether or not we should be doing this book study because I don't think that this book is, is a good enough book. And they were railing against it. And it just seemed odd to me. And I just, I just asked, I was like, hey, um, have you read the book? No, no, I haven't read the book. But this guy over here, this blogger, says it's bad and we shouldn't read it. It shouldn't be in this church. How easy How easy is it to regulate our discernment to Google, to what other people say, rather than pursuing the love of the Word of God ourselves? How easy is it to just say, Lord, where, or say, Google, where is this verse, rather than knowing where the verse is, because we've put the time in? 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have the mind of Christ today? Are you thinking maybe about the thoughts you had earlier this morning or yesterday? You see, this goes into a connection with Romans 12, 1 and 2, where the Spirit is renewing our mind daily, where we're immersing ourselves in spiritual things, and God is restoring our hearts and minds to Him. If we have the mind of Christ, we shouldn't be easily swayed by the things of this world. But we can be fooled sometimes. A few weeks ago, I sent somebody a text on a quote for miracles that I thought was pretty spot on. I was looking for different quotes to use in that message. Um, I just wanted to get this person's feedback. This was the quote. It said, One of the main reasons that we lose enthusiasm in life is because we have become ungrateful. We let what was once a miracle become common to us. And we get so accustomed to his goodness that it becomes routine. I thought it was 
headed in that right direction of where I was going to be going with that message. I ended up going with a quote from Albert Einstein instead. But, you know, I, I sent him this quote, and I didn't say who it was from because I wanted an honest reaction. quote happened to be from Joel Osteen. Now, I don't know what you necessarily think of Joel Osteen. I have a pretty good idea on uh, what you're thought is about him and his ministry and his take on the gospel or the lack thereof. But as you look at the who it's from, do you then insert his theology into that quote? Are we able to discern truth no matter the source? You look at different people that were used in the Bible, people like Balaam, who is a diviner, who is using demonic arts to prophecy, being used by God to bless and speak truth to the people of Israel. You look at how God works through Nebuchadnezzar and other people as well. Truth is truth. Are we able to discern it? Again, a heavy dose of testing is needed to understand. I want to challenge us today with the gift of discernment because I think that we desperately need this. So I'm going to have some phrases up on the board. And what I want us to do is discern. How would you respond in these situations? And they're, they're common sayings. It's nothing too difficult today. Um, but it could be. I think as we continue to practice this, it's better done in a Sunday school setting or a small group setting where there's, a fewer, there's fewer people involved and there could be a lot more engagement and give and take. But you know, as the Bible says to test the spirits, it's very clear. If something is confessing other than Jesus as Lord and Savior, it's coming from the enemy. It's false. Those are obvious. That's an easy one, right? But as we look at some of these statements that we've looked at in the past or maybe heard in the past, Jesus is not God or Jesus was only man. Common, common things that you'll hear from Muslim faith, that you'll hear from Gnostics, um, from antiquity. There are many paths to heaven. Choose your own adventure. God wants me to be happy and rich. Money is the root of all evil. So, you know, how would you respond? I mean, we could probably say it's not true, why? What's your, what's your proof? Do you just, okay, why is this not true? <laughs> this is what we need to be turning to, to say why these are not true, why these would be false. Jesus is not God. He was only a man. Colossians 1 and Colossians 2 talk about how Jesus was fully God, dwelt in bodily form. There are many paths to heaven. This is a universalistic quote, but you have Acts 4, only by the name of Jesus can a man be saved. And then in John 14, um, it talks about no one could come to the Father except through me. You know, you're, you're using Scripture to validate our beliefs, to understand why something like this would be false. God wants me to be happy and rich, uh, prosperity gospel type of theme. Uh, Luke 14, Jesus is talking about how the disciples need to count the cost. 
before they follow him, understanding that it's going to be hard, that there's going to be trials, that there's going to be persecution. In Romans 8, again, looking at the suffering and things like that. And, you know, with, especially with prosperity gospel messages and happy and rich, I, defining your terms, sure, I get that, because we are blessed beyond whatever through the salvation that we have in Christ. But in a true prosperity gospel sense, what do we tell our brothers and sisters in China? What do we tell our brothers and sisters across the world that are facing such persecution that, you know, faith in America is a convenience a lot of times. It, yeah, let's go to church today. Sounds fun. Feel good about myself. I don't know that we've counted the cost too well. Money is the root of all evil. Hear that often. That's twisting scripture from 1 Timothy 6.10. You leave out important words of the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is a tool that can be used for the kingdom of God. About God won't give you more than you can handle. Bad things happening to good people. And when you die, God gains another angel. That's my personal pet peeve, that last one. <laughs> but it's used often, often. So God won't give you more than you can handle. Twisting of scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is where that's found. Read through that. Read through that whole chat. Again, context. When we get hung up on single verses, we're not looking at the context of the whole picture. The whole picture is talking about their idol worship and how Jesus is the way out of all of that. Bad things happen to good people. This is a thought that, it's been around for a while. It really became big with the emerging church uh, 30 years ago. Uh, Mark ten eighteen. Jesus is talking to the person that calls him good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You know, it starts from this false assumption, a fallacy of that there are good people. And then when you die, God gains another angel. It's kind of a cliche thing to say when people are grieving, but it's false. 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you know that we will judge the angels? So you think about the nature of Satan and why he fell, why he wanted to, to disobey God is because he didn't want to serve humans. Legalism. It's another fun one. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's Acts 15, verse 1. It is written. It's in the Bible. But unless you know the context, you can run with this. You know, you think of... I don't know how to say this. You think of the arguments that are used against Christianity, especially by um, the homosexual community that, as we say, the Bible says it's an abomination. Well, the Bible also says you shouldn't eat sh shellfish. So what are you doing doing that? And where you're taking verses out of context. Obviously, this is from the circumcision camp that are trying to tell the Gentiles that they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. It is a form of legalism where they're trying to control salvation, adding things on to the name of Christ. Again, could seem obvious. 
Unless you are immersed, you're not saved. Unless you speak in tongues, you are not saved. Unless you attend this church or you're part of this denomination, you cannot be saved. Unless you follow Calvin or Arminianist, depending on the side that you're on, you cannot be saved. Unless you are reformed, you cannot be saved. That one might hit a little close to home. But you know, as you look at how many people uh, that are in this room, each of us might have a different understanding of what reformed means. But how do we use legalism? You know, anything that is added to Jesus, Jesus only, is a form of legalism. It becomes this Jesus and theology. And that's, you know, this side of that spectrum. Then on this side you have the hyper-grace side, which is everything's okay and it leads to very universalistic mindsets. Again, these spectrums and pendulums that we can be on in our life. The gift of discernment brings truth in all of these matters to where instead of being on the extremes, we're back towards the center where the Spirit would want us to be. But, you know, we can, we can fluctuate throughout all of that based on our understandings and based on how we are in the Word. Now, we can continue doing this type of thing, looking deeper, deeply at what's said in Scripture. Um, there's a lot of passages that speak on the importance of this gift. But today I want to close with 1 Kings chapter 13. If you would turn there with me. First Kings chapter 13 is a tragic story of a very gifted prophet. As we read through this, I want you to count how many gifts this guy has. Beginning in verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel, Jeroboam, was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was also torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that 
that he came to Bethel. Now, an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came to him and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. So they also told their father the words he had spoken to the king. And their father said to him, which way did he go? And the sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the, the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water for you in this, with you in this place place, for it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither, neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor, nor return by the way you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into the, your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but you have come back, you have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tombs of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. As he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown into the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown into the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word the Lord had spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And they went and they found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother, after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he is called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses in the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but he made priests for the high places again, from the, among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. So, how many gifts do you think this guy had? Obvious ones, three. I count five if you count word of knowledge and word of wisdom. But what did he lack? discernment. He heard the word of God. He knew what he wasn't supposed to do. But there was somebody else from God, a prophet of God, who came in and said something contrary to what the word of God 
said to him. This man of God had good intentions. Now, there are many passages in the Bible that scare me. This one scares me because I have good intentions. You know, I can assist you, I can guide you, I can shepherd you, I can help you on the walk. But I cannot walk for you. Each of you have to walk with the Lord. You have to be in communication with Him. You have to be in the Word. You have to understand what the Spirit is doing in your life. You have to discern even what I am saying. Do not take this for granted that I'm speaking truth all of the time. But discern. Test what I am saying. Weigh what I am saying back to the Word of God. I weep over the thought that something I say or do could bring destruction in someone's life. You know, we look at this story and we say, it's not fair. This guy, he was a prophet of God. He was doing everything right. He was tricked. Will that excuse stand before the Lord? You look at all of the churches, even in America, that are falling apart. You look at the pastors that have moral failings. You look at the pastors that are misleading their churches. Does that excuse stand for the body? No. I will be judged for what I say from the pulpit. You will be judged based on how you're discerning and living this life. You think about you think about the excuses of the Lord. You think about how this isn't fair. You know, when I read this, I think of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. You guys know about Uzzah, right? You do, you just might not know the name. In 2 Samuel 6, And when they came to the threshing floor in Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. It's one of those like, come on, Lord, really? I mean, who wants to see the ark tumble and crash and fall and just get broken into pieces? Not Uzzah. I'm going to study it. Is that a good enough excuse? I mean, how could God do that? Well, it's written. Numbers 4, 15. And when Aaron and the sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Koath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Koath are to carry. Without discernment from the Spirit of God, we see many instances where people are led to their deaths because they are living in disobedience. Now, we can skate by from day to day. We can get by by the skin of our teeth sometimes. But the risk is always there. You think of a smaller thing like wearing a seatbelt. You don't have to wear a seatbelt. You might get ticketed if you do. But if you get in an accident and you're not wearing a seatbelt, the consequence could be death. You know, we love to blame other things in life when it comes to our own disobedience or our own lack of discernment. 
In a world where truth is intentionally being rejected and assaulted on a daily basis, where it's being blurred, where there is confusion running rampant in our society, we need to cling to the one who is true. And we need to understand that we have the mind of Christ. And we should not be swayed by this world and the enemies within because we are daily devoting ourselves to his truths, to his word, where we are studying and understanding his will. The chance that happens for discernment happens all of the time in our life. And we need to be on guard, relying on the Spirit, praying for his wisdom and discernment, for understanding, to perceive his ways, which are above our own. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again just for the truth of your word, for the power of your spirit working in our lives. I pray desperately for this gift, Lord, to be in all of us, that we would seek your ways, that we would seek your truth, that we'd have a heart and a passion for your word. For if we don't, then we won't know when Satan says, did God really say? Instead, we're going to be relying on our own logic, our own intellect, our own traditions, what we think is right. Lord, you are the way, the truth, and the life. May we never lift ourselves or other things above you. May we not treat our faith as mere convenience, a get-out-of-hell-free card, but instead as a, a deeply intimate relationship where you have empowered us to advance your kingdom forward. Lord, I pray that you would give us discerning hearts and minds, that we would know your truth in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.